Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Are you familiar with the word batcher? Webster's Dictionary defines batcher as the alluvial land between a river at low water stage and a levee, used particularly for such land along the lower Mississippi River. There's Batcher land right here in the midst of metropolitan New Orleans, but unless you're lucky enough to know a Batcher dweller, you may never have realized just what's happening on the other side of the levee. On this week's show, we're speaking with three Batcher experts. First, we talk with Macon Fry, whose recent publication is They Called Us River Rats. Macon reveals the full extent of his Batcher obsession and shares decades of research about lives spent there in relative obscurity. Then we'll visit with Dickie Brennan at his new Batcher dwelling, where he's enjoying all the benefits of life in one of the last camps located there. Finally, Tulane environmental professor Oliver Huck joins us to share his tales of countless hours spent observing life, wild and otherwise, as he walked his beloved dog along the Batcher daily. We're exploring lives spent on the other side of the levee on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Macon Fry. I'm the author of a book, They Called Us River Rats, the story of New Orleans' last Batcher settlement. Author Macon Fry of New Orleans is a longtime river rat. His longing for river waters, born from a childhood spent on the Rappahannock River in Virginia, never subsided. When he moved to New Orleans in the 1980s, a chance encounter at an uptown bar led him to the banks of the mightiest of North American rivers, the Mississippi, where he would go on to make a home. I asked Macon to take us back to where his obsession with the Batcher all began and what brought him to New Orleans in the first place. Poppy, I had just finished a very conventional youth spent in Northern Virginia and attending the University of Virginia. And my colleagues were largely remaining in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but it just seemed like it was changing so quickly around me. And I had friends in New Orleans, and New Orleans seemed like a place that just seemed a little bit immune to that rat race. And uh, I came here, like a lot of other people, looking for great food and, and street culture and music. And uh, 
also looking for a place to be near that big river. How did you find the New Orleans Batcher settlement in the first place? It it really surprised me, Poppy, when I uh, first came to New Orleans, even before I moved here. Uh, I think a lot of people have the same reaction. Now, where is the river? Uh, because of the height of the levees. And at that point in time, there were so few places to access the river. And I would have never found this tiny vestigial community where I live if I hadn't run into a Batcher resident at the Maple Leaf Bar, an uptown watering hole I know you're familiar with. A watering hole that is, shall we say, spitting distance to said river. Sure. If it was any closer, it would have to be up on stilts. (laughs) He was at the bar, and he was expounding on on all sorts of conspiracy theories. And it kind of caught my ear because a lot of them were based in New Orleans, Edwin Edwards, Carlos Marcello, and I was, I'd been in New Orleans a few years, but I was uh, interested in a good local storyteller. And I bought him a beer, and he immediately asked where I was from. And I told him I had spent much of my life. Actually, I lied. I told him that I had actually grown up on the Rappahannock River in Virginia. Uh, because it's a touchstone for me, the Rappahannock River. And he said, well, I, uh, I live on the river right here. Uh, and I'm, I was like, no. That's not possible. And he's like, well, sure, you know, come on, we'll go take a look. So, you know, I bought him another beer because he had finished that quickly and put mine in a go cup. And he took me up to the bachelor. We walked whatever the eight, seven or eight blocks. And uh, there I was in an entirely different world, a totally unexpected place. This was a fall evening, so... Uh, we walked into the camp, as they call the houses of, on the Batcher. We got, walked into camp number one and a half, and the uh, shutters were open, and fog was just blowing right through the house. He had like a gas lamp on the table that he had left on a low wick, and uh, it was mystical. It was a <laughs> mystical place. I could hear the waves uh, in what I call in front of the house, uh, you know, on the river. And uh, we walked through the house, and uh, there we were with, with nothing between us and, and the tankers, uh, except driftwood. Uh, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And you stayed. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to stay because there were, there were only 12 houses, and it never, I never would have imagined when I walked in, into the door of the shack, which everyone called the house where Rob lived. Uh, when I walked into the shack, uh, I would have never suspected that it could be my home. But I very quickly discovered that, that Rob was an interesting character and that he was prepared to leave the bachelor Uh, amazingly because he uh, could not afford the rent, which was going up to $100 a month. And uh, I arrived at the right time with the right person, and Rob changed my life. You know, I always felt like I would live on a river. From my history growing up in Virginia and spending so much time on the Rappahannock River as a child, 
I felt like I would end up on a river. But I arrived in New Orleans and, and suddenly it didn't really seem possible. And there I was. In that moment, I realized, yeah, this is what I want. You know, Megan, it's so funny. I've known you through your work in community gardens. And when I read this book, I discovered that your true life's obsession, and I've seen you kind of obsessed about things (laughs) before, like community gardening, but your true life's obsession is the Batcher. Yeah, people, I think people always... uh look at what they they don't have. So that's how I'm going to explain my obsession with gardening is because, after all, when you live on the bachelor, there's really not enough dry land to plant anything. So uh, maybe after 15 years on the bachelor, I felt like I needed to put down roots in some soil. But uh, I never uh, never let go of the place on the river, and I never will. And so this obsession led you to do absolutely exhaustive research. And there were a lot of treasures that you found, many of them at the Louisiana Research Collection at Tulane. Oh, yeah. the uh, It blew my mind when I, I went to Tulane after Katrina because I had been to the research collection when I first started meeting river people and doing research back in uh, the 1990s or 2000. But uh, I found very little there initially. You know, there was a folder that had a story about a faith healer that lived in a shanty boat on the river. And And this was at Tulane. Yeah. And there was a newspaper story about uh, a Batcher settlement that they called Depressionville, during the Depression. So there were some fragments there, but uh, nothing was digitized, first of all. So the only uh, resources were were on uh, microfiche, which was a disaster. Uh, so, but that, that was it. And I went back after Katrina, and they had really improved the collection and the resources and the archiving. And uh, suddenly a, uh, a folder appeared that was the Batcher Dweller's file. And it had a record, uh, presumably that was preserved by one of the lawyers that represented the Batcher residents uh, during their fight against the levy board to preserve their homes. The 1940 census found that there were 215 people living there in 110 homes. But all of that changed one hot July day in the 50s. What happened? First of all, there were probably many more people than that living on the Batcher. But Batcher dwellers uh, have a long history of not trusting public authorities. And uh, getting an accurate count. I I would hate to be a census worker trying to get a count of people living in camps on the Mississippi River. I mean, first of all, they had to be willing to walk down walkways that might not have been easily traversable, and they might have been full of dogs or goats or some other creatures. And then probably the most prickly creatures they would have run into would have been the bachelor dwellers themselves. ¶¶ 
But uh, on that particular uh, fateful day, the levy board and the Corps of Engineers had uh, a year previously uh, indicated that they needed to tear down the houses in order to put concrete on the side of the levy. Now, the lie to that was abundantly clear because they had put concrete on the side of the levy in Jefferson Parish and they did not disturb the camps there. They had put concrete on the levy next to Bissau Marine where there were camps and they did not disturb the camps. But in this particular instance, the levy board owned that land. It was their, that land, the Batcher was their property. And they had Batcher tenants, people living, that had been living in camps there for uh, nearly 30 years. It was to the point where those people could have claimed rights to their land, squatters rights to their land. So they took it to court. And uh, that was the date that the judge said that uh, those camps would be torn down and people were forcibly removed. And there were a lot of, of older people there. There were people that had lived there generations, so there were multiple generations of people there uh, whose homes uh, were bulldozed and their possessions were, were out on the levee uh, for several days in the rain. You know, the context of the entire story of this book, and maybe one of the things that inspired me to write it is that it's a time when it seems like uh, every place becomes more like every place else. And uh, part of what we're seeing is that have seen during our lifetime here in New Orleans is the loss of these waterfront communities that were really a very important part of our culture. They were an important part of our food culture, bringing river shrimp into the city. They were important to New Orleans culture in many ways. And those communities uh, have been lost, some of them to storms, but uh, more often than not, they've been lost to the action of uh, city or governmental agencies, which abhor people living on the fringe. So, Megan, What's life like on the river today? Well, you know how I said every place becomes more like every place else? I can't deny that some of that is creeping in on the Batcher. We've got some bigger houses there. And some of the people like myself that have lived there a long time and was a, I was a poor righteous school teacher and then a poor righteous farmer have, uh, have done pretty well living up there. So uh, I'm not sure if I could afford to move there now. Mm. I'm not sure that culturally uh, it's the same place that it was, that it's that kind of um, place where anybody could go and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and realize that kind of dream. But uh, it's still a place where there's river shrimp, and it's still a place where there's catfish, and it's still a place where... uh, uh, neighbors wake up and see the sun rise over the levee and, and set over the river, and, uh, and people can build whatever kind of house they want there. Megan, thank you for giving us this incredible slice of life and um, sharing with us your magnificent obsession with bachelor life on the New Orleans-Mississippi River. Uh, thanks for having me in for a conversation. Thank you.
That was Make and Fry, New Orleans Batcher Dweller and author of They Called Us River Rats, the last Batcher settlement of New Orleans. Coming up next, we head over the levee for a first-hand glimpse of life on the Batcher with one of the neighborhood's newest residents, Dickie Brennan. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Nestled in the netherworld between the levee and the Mississippi River, the Batcher is home to a tiny community that lives among the water, sand, trees, and mud. Lining this strip of wilderness are a dozen eccentric structures where residents enjoy life on the edge. You know, I mean, this is where they built up the jet. Mm -hmm. So eventually I want to put a deck down there. Mm -hmm. Among the neighborhood's newest residents is New Orleans chef and restaurateur Dickie Brennan. Despite its proximity to the city, his handsome riverfront home is surrounded by lush vegetation and the kind of fauna found in more rural environs. Born and raised in Uptown, Dickie has now embraced the bachelor life and is often found taking in the outdoors on his deck watching ships, tugs, and paddle wheelers make the turn on the Mississippi. We join Dickie on his back deck to learn about his life on the Badger. Yeah, I mean, to, to sit out on this porch and watch this river in the morning with a cup of coffee, to before I go to bed at nighttime, to sit out here, you know, and unwind and watch this river, I mean, there's a bald eagle flying around. There's this beautiful, it's chocolate brown owl. You know, at first I thought it was like the eagle flying. And so, the, so the wildlife's crazy. I mean, twice I've seen an alligator. We don't have alligators, but they get in the river and they come by. So, <laughs> you know, so it's amazing what I'm seeing. And 
you know, when you look out, the, the sun sets right here on the river. And so you have the most beautiful sunset in the afternoons. So it's just, I don't know, it just, it's, it makes me feel really good. And I hate leaving. <laughs> it's crazy because, you know, you are such an outdoorsman anyway. No, I've grown up doing a lot, you know, of the outdoor stuff, which I love. So, I mean, it's like I got in the car and drove two hours to a place where I can unwind and enjoy the outdoors. But it's right here in the city, so it's kind of, I don't know, I pinch myself every day. So, Dickie, how did you come to discover this place on the Batcher? Well, I've known about these houses since it was in the late 90s because I would ride a bike for exercise and I'd ride from uptown to Audubon Park I'd ride around the butterfly you know try to get an hour in and head home and one day someone said you should take the new bike path it goes all the way past the Huey P. Long Bridge so the next day I, it was hard to find but I found the connection from the butterfly to get onto the levee and head up river and as I was coming up river, I never forget, I came over this little hill and all of a sudden on the riverside of the levee was this row of houses. And I, it's like yesterday, I remember, and I had two thoughts. I said, I want to meet whoever it was that figured out to live in a house on, you know, in this wonderful little pocket. And I want to own one one day. Now, I mean, that's 30 years ago. What was the reaction from your family and friends when you told them, hey, I'm, I'm going out to the Batcher now? <laughs> you know, I, I came to see the house. Uh, my nephew, Jordy Brower, his wife, Sally, um, had worked with me for a little bit, but then had gotten into real estate. She's a realtor, and so she was helping me find a... I was looking for a place to live, and she just kind of calls me out of the blue and says, Uncle Dickie... There's a place, I don't know, it just kind of reminds me of you, but I think you might want to look at it. I was like, okay. And so I said, what does that mean it reminds you of me? And she couldn't really answer me. I was like, okay. And then she started describing. I said, Sally, stop. I know exactly where you're talking. I said, I don't know if I'm going to buy one, but we're going to go look at it. I'm dying to see one. And I walked it, and I walked out, and I just said, I want to buy the house. I said, but I really want, I need to have some discussion, you know, with my my family whatever so I brought my two kids with me we walked through the house and my daughter Sarah I'm like okay so what do y'all think and she's like dad it's so you <laughs> so for the second time I'm like oh what the hell does that mean she's like oh dad it's you so I was like I guess that's y'all think I should buy this house and they're like yes so then I said I really need for somebody to tell me I'm out of my mind <laughs> literally my mother who I said I'm gonna buy a house you want to see it before I buy it I said, but you're going to have to go up and down stairs, which she hates. She's like, absolutely, if you're going to buy it. I brought my sister, my brother, and then my, my cousin, Will Trist, because he's my, my financial guy, and he tells me if I can spend money or not. So I bring in the big hitters. They're all here, walked around the house. I mean, it's like a bunch of dogs just had gotten out of a car, you know, scattered, <laughs> running around. And I finally, my mother finally made it upstairs to sitting in the couch, my sister sitting there, and I, I go over there and I said, what do y'all think? 
and she's like, well, I don't like this color, but I think if we painted this color, so that that's in there decorating the house. And I'm like going, so what do y'all think when, and they're like, it's so you. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? So at that point, it was just like, you know, and I'm looking at Will, he's like, Pete, buy it. You can buy it. All right. So we bought the house and I think we've all enjoyed it. It's been fun. How long have you been here now? When did you move in? Like March last year, right? And then COVID hit. So you moved in in like March 2020, like right before COVID. Yeah. Oh, how perfect that was, huh? It was God sent because <laughs> to move in a new house and get settled in and all that when when the city had said, shut your restaurant down, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would have jumped off of a roof. So, I mean, it really timing wise, it was the God sent during a really rough, rough time for all of us. Give me a little orientation because we're both East Bank folks. So it's very hard for me to visualize what is that on the other side from where you are. And my goodness, it looks like a lovely beach over there. So it's Nine Mile Point and it's where the power plants are. These uh, natural gas power plants for Orleans and Jefferson. And that turn, um, you know, in the... Um, bar pilot world, the men and women that pilot the ships up and down the river that take control of the ocean going ships. Mm -hmm. Supposedly around the world, if you're a mountain climber and you want to climb Mount Everest, this turn right here in the river is supposedly the Mount Everest uh, for a bar pilot to captain a big mm -hmm. ship around a turn. So all day long you watch these big old boats, especially when they're going back down river because they hit a certain point and they kind of shut down the engines, everything, and they just turned the keel and they let the boat drift. And then when the point of the boat is level with the down river, then they fire up the engines and they start going again. But they let the boat drift around this bend. The barges, it's really interesting to watch. And then when they're going upriver and downriver and you have a tugboat, and a, I mean, it's fun to watch. What's the craziest thing you've seen on the river so far? So I'm in my office, this is maybe a couple of months ago, downstairs, which has windows that looks out on the river. And you never hear the ships blow a horn. So I heard like two horns and I was like, that's not a train, that's, that's somebody on the boat. And then right after that, it was five horns that you know blew five times, one ship which means we're getting ready to have a problem and it's going to get ugly. And so as that's happened, I'm looking out the window and on the turn, I can see this big ocean going cargo ship. And there's a barge that's kind of blocking the whole river, not moving. You know, my neighbor's a bar pilot. And so at that point, we're both looking. I said, what's up? And he says, well, he's either going to hit metal or mud. <laughs> and I'm like, okay what are we gonna do and so we're sitting here watching so i mean this thing is just lined up coming to hit mud to hit the bank instead of hitting the barge metal and up river from us right up here is the in water intake for jefferson parish you know the water company and then down river is the intake for orleans parish so as it's coming this way and it's getting real close to the shore uh, you know, and it's so close that it can't turn to get itself out. So it's just got to keep going. But it's drifting. And 
when it hits the intake over here, it kind of made it straighten out. So thank God, instead of coming to the levee, it just came down this side of the river, which you could hear it scrape and hit bottom and everything, you know, which was <laughs> real interesting. So, I mean, I'm looking at a boat that's normally another 100 yards further in the channel. It's like in my front yard, <laughs> passing by, and then it hit the intake down, which gave it the opportunity to, to, to steer back out into the river. So we kind of watched the whole ordeal, and then, you know, next thing you know, a boat's showing up to come take the people off the boat to, I guess they were going to get drug tested. But um, <laughs> but for a minute there, I was like, I need to evacuate. So if I hear five horns uh, in the middle of the night and I'm sleeping, I'm, I'm getting up. I'm getting huh? up. <laughs> Dickie, what is it about river life that appeals to you the most? Well, I'm, I'm a cancer, so I'm a crab, you know, I mean, one, I like my little place, and this is definitely a little place, <laughs> and I love water, I always have loved water, love boating, fishing, you know, and all I, all I keep saying is this place just makes me feel good, so um, I'm grateful, because I, I still can't believe that I get to wake up and go to bed being there looking at that river and just everything i learn something i see something different every day it's fascinating dickie i am thrilled and honored to have had this little sojourn with you along the batcher thank you mr brennan uh, well you're my favorite i mean i'm glad we're sitting here doing this and hopefully we'll uh, have many many more great memories sharing some time here together With chef and restaurateur Dickie Brennan of the Dickie Brennan Restaurant Group at his home on the Batcher. did a Mississippi Batcher Shack play in saving the New Orleans Saints franchise following Hurricane Katrina? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tucker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, 
Just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What role did a Mississippi batcher shack play in saving the New Orleans Saints franchise following Hurricane Katrina? Well, for starters, let's clarify that shack thing. As we learned from our visit with Dickie Brennan, most of the few remaining Batcher dwellings don't exactly qualify as shacks. But that's exactly how ESPN Magazine described Tommy Coleman's camp back in 2005. Following Katrina, it was widely believed that Tom Benson might want to relocate the franchise to another city. ESPN reported that NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue gathered with several New Orleans businessmen at, I quote, a river camp owned by shipping magnate Thomas Coleman, one of a dozen exclusive shacks built on the thin, fragile strip of land called the Batcher. They went on to claim that, quote, Generations of New Orleanians have used these shacks, just a couple of miles from Audubon Park and the mansions on St. Charles, for whiskey drinking and holding meetings too secret for the public exposure of an office. Really? Trust me, you'll have to read Macon's book to get the full gist of just how wrong they got that reporting. But there was such a meeting held, and thanks in part to Mr. Coleman and his businessmen compatriots, the Saints have never called another city home. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Although he doesn't live on the Batcher, Oliver Hawk spent countless hours there, wandering the banks of the Lower Mississippi, always with his beloved dog in tow. The Tulane environmental law professor researched the history of the Batcher and gathered reflections on his experiences there for his classic 2010 book, Down on the Batcher. A few years after its publication, Oliver joined us to share stories of his adventures on this vibrant strip of wilderness between the levee and the river's edge. The Batcher is the place, as the French say, that the water beats against the land, which is why it's called the Batcher. And it's that nondescript piece of terrain between the top of the levee 
and wherever the Mississippi River happens to be at the moment. So in the spring, there's virtually no badger. The water's right up to the base of the levee. Nobody knows about the badger because there's so few people up there. It's just this wonderful no-man's land uh, that runs basically from the Corps of Engineers upriver as far as you want to go. It'll go as far as Vicksburg. But this is a place where very extraordinary people go. Folks are fishing for catfish, and they're in there making rafts, and they're doing Tom Sawyer stuff, and it's a marvelous ceremony. You've seen a lot of catfishing going on there, right? Yeah. There is a lot of fishing on the Batcher, and it's a little scary because the Mississippi contamination can be pretty high, and you never know because mm-hmm. there are these what they call excursions from the industries upstream, and you just you don't know what's swirling down. If you took a grab sample of the river on any given day, it might be perfectly good. It would just mm. be sediment-filled, muddy water. But, boy, those industrial discharges are powerful. If you go right below the big refineries, Exxon, Shell, you're going to have some pretty dramatic bumps. And so that's where people fish. Wow. Um, and basically these are poor people, mm-hmm. often African-American. And... Uh, they're bringing these whoppers out of the water, and they're taking them home. I mean, it's like taking home a knapsack. Well, when I read your book, you immediately captivated me with your description of skinning a catfish. Well, it's it's amazing, and I've, I've watched them do it, although mostly they do it at home. They'll take the whole fish home. It's easier. But there is this fellow who fishes right under the power lines by Oshner. And one high water evening, I came down, and he was wrestling a fish out of the water. It was so big that if he tried to pull it out of the water on his hook and line, he would have broken the line or ripped the hook out of its mouth. It was was like a buffalo in the water. He slid into the water, and he just oozed his way over to the fish and started stroking it and calming it. And within minutes, he had that fish absolutely calm, nuzzling him like a puppy. Wow. And then he slowly slipped his hand in behind the gills of the fish until his hand was literally inside the fish's throat, still soothing the fish. He's about waist deep at that point. Standing in the water, he begins hauling this monster out of the water. And when he finished, he had a very large fish out. There was a log there. And he had a hammer and a nail, and he nailed the fish to the log so that it hung down. And he just slid it down each side and pulled and pulled and pulled. Um, It's the way I imagine young girls must get out of their jeans these days. I have no (laughs) idea how they do it otherwise. But he completely turned that skin inside out, leaving the catfish there, and then he gutted it and took home the meat. Really, Oliver, I have to tell you, I'm still haunted by your description of the unusual rabbit hunting activities you've observed. Yeah. Now, what's up with that? There are a lot of wild animals in there. There are wild pig, coyote, all manner of hawks and owls, but the most common are the rabbits. Uh, Some of them get big, and you can see entire families out there on the edge uh, towards evening. 
and they tend to sortie out of the shelter of those woods to feed at the woods' edges and to go over the top of the levee and go into gardens on the far side. Then they retreat back. So I was biking up there one evening, and this was at spring high water, so there was very little dry land between the levee and the river. And there were just a few pieces of dry land with brambles on it, and that's where the rapids would be, and that's where the people were. There were four of them. They came bursting out of the woods below me, the men brandishing golf clubs and chasing a rabbit who was looked like a pregnant mother. She was heavy. Oh, the belly was heavy. And she lumbered up the levee in front of my bike and then down the other side, the men in hot pursuit. And I just put my bike between them as if I were surprised. And I was surprised. And I stopped. And I said, what's up? And the guy said, hunting rabbits. And his eyes were just wild with sort of joy. <laughs> and, you know, as you are now, I was shocked. And I dawdled there to give that rabbit time to get away. But I could see on the levee top pieces of fur and other things. This wasn't oh. the only rabbit they had been after. And they do it with a golf club. They did, which I thought was kind of wonderful. Uh, uh, <laughs> Because, I mean, if you go back to the roots of human beings, that's the way we killed rabbits, right? <laughs> but here's, Poppy, here's this what occurred to me, and this is what I muse about. Why was I shocked? What was I? Was it the fact of a golf? Suppose they had been hunting him with a bow and arrow. Uh -huh. Suppose they had been hunting him with a gun. Would I have felt as shocked, offended, uh Wow, we've taken a big step backward, you know, with the first step <laughs> thought in my mind, but but no. And so the fun part of this story and all the stories in here is not just what happened, but what does it sort of mean? What does it mean to have people hunting rabbits in this way, down in this scraggly piece of woods? Is there something nice about people being free to be able to do it? I know that when you're on The Bachelor, you are often doing all sorts of much tamer food gathering. And honestly, Oliver, I'd never heard of dewberries until you introduced me to them. So would you tell us about the Bachelor character who introduced you to dewberries? Yeah, he did it indirectly. Um, he was gathering mulberries. Probably another thing that's gone out, but... This was a fellow who camped on the levee under a shelter, and he worked at a, at a hardware store on Oak Street. So I knew who he was, and he was picking the mulberries, and he said he'd made wine out of them. Mm. So I took a few, and it popped them in my mouth. I don't know whether you have tasted mulberries, but they're, they're not succulent. They have a taste, but it's a little like eating a dried fruit. And I said, that's a little bitter, Sam. And, and then he said... Well, you ought to try the dewberries. <laughs> and they come in later. The mulberry come out in February, and the dewberries will come out in, in March. And they look like a blackberry. They look like a raspberry. But they're 10 times as sweet. They're often larger. What color are they? Oh, they're a deep purple when they're ripe. They go from green to red, which is, in nature, red's kind of a warning sign. You just don't eat red things. 
and then it moves on to purple. So the trick with the dewberries is a little more fundamental. It's the picking them because they're thorn bushes. Oh. And inside those thorn bushes, they seem to have this symbiosis with poison ivy. They attract each other. Oh, dear. So poison ivy will be up in there. Also, little critters will be up in there. There'll be anole. There may be some little snakes. There may be, you know, you'll kick up some rabbits. You know, you're, you're out in the briar patch. But here's the thing about the Batcher that is important. If you were on the Batcher over the levee, you're away from the highway sounds. You have the river sounds coming, but they are ancient river sounds. They're boats going by, and they go back millennia. And although you're 100 yards away from people, I mean, they're riding by in the levee top. You could throw a stone and hit them. You are as mentally away and as aesthetically away as if you were in the North Pole, uh, as if you were in the jungle. There's this wonderful awareness, awayness. That has a profound effect on people. It's such an unknown place to us and it's so rich. I've loved being there, and I like being on your show as well. Thanks. Well, this was a delicious tour, so thank you. My pleasure. That was Tulane Law professor and author Oliver Hawk speaking to us in 2013. The name of his book is Down on the Batcher. about Oliver Hawk's bunny batcher tail put me in the mood to eat some rabbit. Now I know some of you might shy away from cooking Peter Cottontail, but rabbit has been an important part of Louisiana heritage cuisine since the French settlers arrived here over 300 years ago. Rabbit's high in protein, low in fat, and has half the calories of pork, so let's get cooking. Because rabbit can be a little tough, Stewing or braising is one of the best ways to prepare it. To cook up a delicious rabbit fricassee, season six hind legs with salt and pepper and brown them in a skillet with a little oil. In that same oil, saute some sliced onion until it's softened and translucent and then return the rabbit to the skillet and add enough chicken stock to just cover the legs. Add a couple of bay leaves and some thyme, and then bring it all to a boil, cover, and reduce the heat to a simmer, a low simmer. In about 40 minutes, the meat will be tender and falling off the bone. Remove the legs and let them cool until you can strip off the meat and discard the bones. Next, in a heavy Dutch oven, saute a mirepoix of chopped carrots, onions, and celery, and season with garlic, thyme, and sage. Sprinkle the sautéed veggies with some flour and stir it together for a couple of minutes before adding in the rabbit's cooking liquid and its meat. Season with salt and pepper and serve the fricassee over rice. Mmm, mmm, rabbit fricassee is real Louisiana Eats. Thank you.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.